The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. So um, there's one monster that is kind of a, a recurring villain in American recent American history, and that's the debt ceiling. Uh, and it pops up every few years and uh, threatens to take down uh, both the whole government and possibly the, the global economy. And um, I thought it would be good to take up this issue of you know, what is the debt ceiling? Um, what is... Joe Biden likely to do about it? And then what are some actual possible solutions for uh, making sure that this doesn't happen again? To discuss all this, I'm very pleased to have on uh, Jeff Hauser, who's the founder of the Revolving Door Project, uh, which is an excellent um, organization uh, that does a lot of work in terms of, um, you know, looking at who's in government, uh, what interests they represent, and uh, whether it's the public or some uh, uh, perhaps uh, private interest. Uh, so, uh, Jeff, uh, maybe we could just get started with, um, I mean, I, I think it's actually good to, like, just describe what the debt ceiling is, because that's actually, like, um, you know, I, I'm recording this up here in Canada, and uh, it's something that, you know, doesn't exist here. It doesn't exist in many countries. It, it seems like a very peculiar uh, artifice of uh, American political culture, and it hasn't always existed. It, it's actually fairly recent um, in the long scheme of things. So, 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 so what is this thing? Great to be here, Ajit. Uh, in 1917, Congress decided to try to make it easier for uh, the Treasury Department to issue bonds and to deal with deficit spending. The United States was entering World War I, and the spending of the U.S. government uh, was on the way upward. I mean, World War I and the Wilson administration are, in many ways, the uh, beginning point of the administrative state in the United States, uh, as well as the national security state, uh, for better and for worse. But the U.S. government was becoming a bigger economic uh, actor. And the debt ceiling is now associated with efforts to rein in government spending and rein in the executive branch. But that was exactly the opposite of the intent of the legislation in 1917, which was, again, to facilitate Treasury selling the debt necessary to keep the U.S. government going during World War I. And it didn't start to take on its weird modern context uh, until the 1990s. I think there's an incident in the 1950s that might have slightly foreshadowed um, the sort of hostage taking that we've become all too familiar with uh, in the 1950s. But this is basically a in our all in our lifetimes, you know, except for maybe your youngest uh, listeners uh, development. And it's against the intention of the original law, and it's against logic and the broader constitutional structure of the United States. It's an incoherent mess, which says that when Congress passes appropriations into law, that is, they command the president to spend money, and the president signs that, or Congress passes overcoming a veto with two thirds, that that spending, those very specific requests that uh, the executive branch must spend money, they don't count if and or unless the debt ceiling is raised. Um, and it's a mess and it allows for uh, people in Congress to take the US government hostage. And since 2011, when there's a Democratic president and a Republican Congress, Republicans take the American people and the world economy hostage. And then 
you know, generally speaking, the Democratic president caves. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's good to point out the sort of 1990s origin of that, because it, it does seem to be a sort of product of that sort of, you know, Gingrich era, you know, sort of um, uh, maximalist use of Congress to push the sort of Republican agenda. Um, and also, I, I'm, I'm very glad, uh, and we might want to just um, underscore this, that you mentioned the incoherence of this, because it seems to me that it puts... Um, uh, you have Congress authorizing spending and then the president agreeing to it and then the Congress being able to say that there's this further action that has to be done. But that, that puts the president in a sort of no-win situation because, you know, either he has to um, uh, agree to congressional demands to uh, make the cuts or he has to not spend the money that he's been authorized to spend or to, uh, uh, it, it just, it, it doesn't actually make sense in terms of like how a constitutional structure works. Do you want yeah, to say no, it, yeah. it, it, it's a complete absolute mess. And it is fascinating and horrifying that elites in our political process assume that the debt ceiling is the highest source of law in the United States. And any law that conflicts with the debt ceiling is null and void. The only law that must be respected is the debt ceiling. Um, and there are just a few key reasons to think about why that makes no sense. Uh, the biggest is an argument that's associated with two law professors, Michael Dorff and Neil Buchanan. They call this the trilemma. They say that, yeah, it would be bad to violate the debt ceiling, but there are two other factors in deficit spending. There is the money that Congress has said the president must spend, and then there is the taxation level that has been agreed to. And if you keep the revenue side constant and you keep the deficit, the spending side constant, you cannot comply with the debt ceiling. And that leaves the president in a situation of either violating the debt ceiling, one statute, or making decisions about what spending uh, he or she should or should not proceed with. And that is problematic on two basic levels. One, in the uh, wake of Richard Nixon, there are laws limiting the ability of the president to say, I'm not going to spend that money. Congress should not have appropriated it. I'm going to impound it. That was one of the tools that Nixon did. Uh, I'm not going to spend money that Congress appropriated. And Congress said, no, like, when we appropriate it, we mean it. You spend it. That is your job. You execute the laws. That's what the executive branch does. They execute our instructions. So the president has no ability to say, I like Social Security recipients and I don't like VA recipients. And I do think the Agriculture Department Department's important, but the Interior Department, what the heck do they do anyway? We're not going to fund them. The president doesn't have the authority to do that. So they would each day be making decisions about what spending to go forward on. And they'd be violating a whole bunch of instructions because they're not going to do a lot of spending has to not happen. And this is all in order to avoid uh, going against the debt ceiling, the one law apparently that you cannot violate. And then there are constitutional issues. Both the 14th Amendment respect debts and obligations of the federal government, and also separation of powers, that the president is, again, taking the role of Congress in making decisions about spending. There's a not only a statutory argument that the president can't do it, there's a constitutional argument which is why the line item veto was held to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The line item veto was Congress can give the president the authority to cut specific expenditures. And the Supreme Court said, 
even if Congress gives the president that authority, the president cannot wield that authority. So how could it possibly be the case that the debt ceiling gives the president that authority when the light item veto it did not? And the light item veto was literally trying to give the president that authority, whereas the debt ceiling is accidentally backing into it uh, by saying cut spending somewhere or somehow under some prioritization scheme that you unilaterally develop. It cannot possibly be good law. Yeah, no, no. I, I think you explained very well the sort of incoherence of uh, the, the situation. And uh, but as you mentioned, like the sort of the history going back to the 1990s is that, uh, you know, when you have a situation of a, a Democratic president and a Republican House, uh, you know, uh, Democratic presidents um, have caved and, you know, uh, are not willing to um, uh, push through. Uh, any way of like you know resolving this and you know like uh, uh, deciding whether this uh, you know like law that forces these impossible situations you know like actually should exist um, and so what do you think I mean like before we talk you know like what what possible options are are, are out there um, uh, you know like it's this is an ongoing situation but um, uh, and uh, Joe Biden I think has given sort of contradictory statements. Um, you know, some indication of some interest in the sort of 14th Amendment solution that you've uh, hinted at. But um, where do we think Joe Biden is right now? I think Joe Biden is boxed in by forces real and illusory alike. Um, it is true that depending on how you pull it, typically a majority of Americans are pretty concerned with the deficit and debt spending. A lot of this is misunderstanding misunderstanding whether or not the US government, which prints the reserve currency of the globe, is similar to a household. It's also failing to understand that deficit spending would also include taking out a mortgage, which is an experience a lot of Americans do within their households and don't think is inherently irresponsible. Um, but like deficit spending, yeah, that's taking on debt, right? Like, so the American people are pretty bad at understanding macroeconomics, and it's unfortunate, and there's a lot more to be done. But we're at a moment where in the next couple of weeks, are the American people going to be properly uh, indoctrinated in uh, modern monetary theory? Um, are they going to uh, learn to be okay with deficit spending? I understand that, like, probably not to the extent to which, you know, you or I might prefer. Um, so that is a political constraint of some sort. And there's also just the general view that people should be able to come to decision points uh, that they like we want everyone to agree. And shouldn't you be a negotiator? And those create like they are I don't think they're super important political obstacles, but they are factors out there that a traditionalist like Joe Biden takes, I think, too seriously. Um, then there's just the sense that like, because we're the more responsible party, we being Democrats, we're the ones who have to concede because the other side really might be willing to shoot the hostage, which is why, I mean, my view is you have to figure out a way to get out of this game because not only is this game gonna be disastrous in terms of any uh, compromise or negotiation that could possibly uh, achieve results in the next few weeks being a disaster for the American people, and every time you negotiate, you make it more likely this is going to happen again in the future. You've got to get out of this re this repeated game of uh, hostage taking, wielding ideological results for the far right. 
Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I, I think the other sort of constraint, um, which might be self-imposed, is that I think the Democrats were kind of hoping, uh, Biden was particularly hoping that sort of um, more mainstream Republicans and sort of um, the center right would coalesce against the sort of hostage taking situation, that they're hoping the sort of business groups um, would uh, um, understand the dangers of blowing up the economy. And I think they underestimated the fact that, you know, a lot of these business groups, um, you know, they basically are happy with the economic outcome if it means like, you know, cutting social spending. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, Biden administration has not signaled uh, enough strength to the business community to panic whatever the most responsible elements of the business community are. They're not panicked that the this is going to um, there's going to be default because they're they feel very comfortable that Biden's going to sell out and again mm -hmm. and they're going to like the sellout. So mm -hmm. why would they bail him out? The other thing is that I think a large chunk of the business community is indistinguishable from the far right ideology. I mean, I think a lot of people who are making political decisions for the large corporations in this country are pretty ideologically extreme. I think there's just a old school view of 1950s, 1960s, big business mm -hmm. um, in which, you know, those were not my favorite people in history, but there was a certain degree of sobriety. Um, perhaps, you know, that's what happens when you have a 90% marginal tax rate. Like you can get to be a little bit more, uh, community focused uh, if you're not going to get super rich by running businesses. And since now you're going to get super rich running business, you are a more ideological factor. Um, but yeah, American big business is not going to bail out uh, Joe Biden. And I think even characterizing the McCarthy budget offering, um, which is incredibly unpopular item by item, but making the American people aware of it and really taking it seriously it's just an enormous communications challenge. And I think the Biden administration thought that getting McCarthy to release a budget would create a political leverage for the Democratic Party. But I don't think the Democratic Party right now has the political tools necessary to really punish Republicans for the extremism of the uh, budget that McCarthy passed. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it doesn't seem... Um... Uh, they had to have the sort of messaging capacity or, uh, um, uh, yeah, the sort of like in uh, the inroads among the sort of centrist media that you would kind of need to, you know, legitimize that message. And uh, that uh, so it seems like I mean, the, the, it seems like there's a genuine dilemma that Biden faces. Um, but along the way, I mean, I think people have suggested, you know, like solutions um, in terms of like. Uh, trying to, you know, get rid of the force of the debt ceiling altogether. And you've sort of, you know, gestured towards some of them, but I think it's actually worth spelling out. Like, what are the actual options, um, you know, so that we can not just, you know, like try to best the Republicans in this particular negotiations, which doesn't seem to likely to happen, but actually to make sure that, you know, we don't have like debt ceiling crises in the future that, you know, force these imp impossible situations. Sure. Um, and so... I tend to be an all of the above person. There's a lot of incredibly personal debates on Twitter about which is the preferred way to puncture the debt ceiling. And my view is to uh, be derisive toward none of the uh, options on offer. And I would support any of them. And whatever 
uh, managed to get through to Merrick Garland, Janet Yellen, Jeffrey Zients, and of course, Joe Biden, I would be happy with. Um, I personally, uh, so I support minting the coin, the console bonds. There are all sorts of mechanisms that take the debt ceiling unseriously enough that, okay, you're going to get us with one loophole. We're going to get you with a different loophole in law. And I'm okay with that. But my preference is to not find a solution to the debt ceiling, but to attack the legitimacy of the debt ceiling itself. Um, and I think the best way to do that is there's a lawsuit from the National Association of Government Employees, uh, which tells Yellen, like, you got to let us know that you are not going to call into question our ability to get paid. And so they have a very good argument to get into court. They have standing. Their salaries are very much up in the air. We have no idea whose salary gets paid in a world in which we hit the debt ceiling. We know not everyone's going to get paid. That's bad. People who are like, that is a legitimate type of uncertainty that a union can sue about. And as we described earlier, the debt ceiling, like there is no scenario under the debt ceiling in which uh, these people can be made to feel certain. We just don't know because it's like daily revenue. We don't like the revenue. We hit X date, X plus one, we get this many billions in. We normally you know, pay you know 1.5 times that then on the next day. So 50% of spending has to be cut. I think so. that lawsuit, it, which has been filed in Boston, that's an important lawsuit. And they're suing the U.S. government. My view is, Janet Yellen and Merrick Garland, you do not defend that lawsuit. You say, you got us. You're right. The debt ceiling makes no sense. We agree that we will have to pay everything that we owe. And you can cite the 14th Amendment or you can cite the trilemma incoherence argument that I made earlier, either or both. And again, I'm in all of the above. I think both apply here. You, you make that argument and you don't sue. You just don't defend. You say, yep, the plaintiff is right. Now, third parties can try to intervene. I don't understand. I cannot think of a third party which has standing to say the debt ceiling has to be followed or else... I don't know, but like some bondholder will claim that it like impacts their value, even though it kind of goes in the other direction. Let them try to make their standing arguments, see if they get into court and then beat them even if they get into court. Maybe they someone proves standing, maybe someone doesn't. But I think if the US government says, we will not defend this lawsuit, we will, uh, we, we just cannot, it is, uh, there's just no good legal argument that the 14th Amendment, I mean, sorry, that the debt ceiling is coherent. I think that wins. And I don't understand how it loses. Like Congress does not have a right to intervene. Congressional standing is generally does not exist in courts. Um, and like if the economy is going to be destroyed, let's have it be destroyed by the Republican Supreme Court, which we need to go after, which <laughs> is the enemy of the people. I, I think like, let's just call the question um, is my approach that gets you out of negotiation and gets you into, should it be okay for this law to destroy the world economy? I, I think that puts you in a much better circumstance than debating what cuts are needed to quote unquote, get our fiscal house in order, which is not so far a winning political strategy. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. It, it puts you in a sort of uh, more hospitable political terrain in terms of like, you know, you want to, uh, uh, it, 
gives you the battle you want to fight rather than uh, the battle the Republicans want to fight. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the court because it, it does seem to me that there are parallels here with this sort of larger question of what happens when you have the Republican um, and their sort of uh, base of power act in such a lawless way as, as we've seen the Supreme Court do. And, you know, as I think um, this innovation of the debt ceiling starting in the 1990s is, um, I mean, it seems like the Democrats are torn between two different instincts, which is like, one is, you know, you have these bad institutions and bad forms, but you try to work within them because you want to preserve the legitimacy of the system. And the other is to just say, well, no, actually the way forward is to, you know, call into question their legitimacy and whether they can actually decide these things and to, you know, challenge them politically. And it seems to me, um, you hear Democrats on both sides of this, you know, the, the sort of institutionalists that want to try to work within the existing structures, uh, even though, you know, they lead to bad outcomes and are politically disadvantageous to the, the Democrats and, and people who are like, you know, thinking more seriously about challenging, you know, both the legitimacy of the debt ceiling and the legitimacy of the, you know, uh, Republican courts. Um, so do you think like, uh, what are the chances that, I, I mean, I think, would we agree that like Joe Biden is very much a kind of institutionalist and like his whole orientation is to try to preserve things to make the system as it exists work and uh, that he's not going to be able to get us where we uh, where you and I might wa uh, want the Democrats to be. I am. I have been increasingly optimistic. I'd say the tenor from the last few days has been discouraging. Some of that's about Yellen. Some of this is that I just the more I think about it, Merrick Garland is the key figure. And I think Merrick Garland is the single most disappointing uh, nominee of the entire Biden administration. Um, I think that uh, the Republicans might make this happen, though. I mean, I think we should. I do not want to have to rely on Republicans being unwilling to accept a, a W and just going too far, but there is a chance that they just actually antagonize Biden and Zions too much, and then they fight on one of the many uh, terrains available to them. Uh, so I'm not sure, um, but I think the tendency is bad, but I think it's really important for activists to make it known to key political players that they are aware that there are options to fight. It's not negotiate or else. There, it, there are alternatives. Like it's, so it's just really important for mm -hmm. activists to let their representatives in Congress know, let the White House know, and let the organizations that they are active in know that they should, there, there are a lot of organizations who are um, fighting within the parameters that the administration wants them to, which is attacking the McCarthy budget and saying like, we shouldn't be playing games, but not, urging the administration to figure out a way to slay the debt ceiling monster. Uh, they should be urging slaying. And I think people who are contributors, grassroots contributors to organizations have an ability to make themselves heard and tell the organizations that they support that you need to fight against the ongoing nature of the debt ceiling. It is a catastrophe. It is an avoidable catastrophe if the executive branch has spine. And we need to have higher expectations. We need to expect spine. If we concede that our leaders will be feckless in advance, then they certainly will be feckless.
Yeah, no, that's really good. Like it, uh, both in terms of uh, strategically what, what people can do. Um, and then also I want to just loop back to a point that you made about how the Republicans could force uh, Biden's hand on this, uh, which is, you know, like McCarthy has like just a very, you know, small uh, majority in the House. Uh, and it's actually getting smaller. I mean, like, with, with George Santos in kind of legal trouble, uh, you know, the, the the exact size of that majority is even up for grabs. And what that means is that, you know, um, the most uh, right wing Republicans get empowered because they can, uh, you know, hold McCarthy hostage just as he's trying to hold Biden hostage. Uh, and so it's not clear to me that like anything McCarthy can get agree with Biden on is something that all the Republicans can agree on. And then McCarthy needs to get all the Republicans. And I think you would only need a handful of really, uh, you know, uh, um, extreme Freedom Caucus Republicans to like just, you know, uh, create a crisis. So it, it does seem like, you know, it's not just in Biden's hands, it's also in McCarthy's hands. And, uh, you know, the, the story is still going to be, um, is still, is still playing out. Yeah, I mean, and then the only uh, dark note in that is the Problem Solvers Caucus and whether or not there'd be some Democrats who would go along with a strong majority, but not unanimity among Republicans. So if there were yeah. 200 Republicans and 18 Democrats, that could get you to a very bad bill. So yeah, no, no, that's, we, that's, that's, that's another that's... thing that where we need... Um, uh, pressure from the grassroots is for your Josh Gottheimers of the world to not think it's worth selling out the Democratic Party on. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm really glad you mentioned all the the grassroots um, uh, efforts that uh, need to be done because I think too often uh, this is discussed at the level of high politics as if it's just a matter of you know the White House and the um, uh, Democratic, uh, the uh, Republicans in uh, Congress and uh, Republican leadership. But, you know, like, you know, this is an issue that seems to be like very existential, like for a lot of Americans. And, you know, w w um, I mean, that might be the missing component that, you know, gets us where we want to be, which is that if you had a Democratic base that's, you know, engaged and, you know, um, uh, takes on, uh, pushes not just the party, but uh, uh, the sort of uh, uh, activist groups, uh, then we could uh, enter into a more, you know, hopeful dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. So um, this is uh, actually <laughs> uh, turned out to be a surprisingly optimistic, or at least there are rays of hope. And I'm really glad, uh, both for this discussion and in general, the work that the uh, Revolving Door Project does of, like, you know, like actually thinking about, you know, solutions that are possible, uh, even within the sort of gridlocked political system. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you. Yep. We, we try to make at least some lemonade out of lemons.